Recovery Elevator, episode 25. And I was leaving his house and I crashed my car, but I don't know how I did it. I still to this day do not know how I did it. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for 11 months, two days, and 14 hours. In 28 days, Recovery Elevator, something very special is going to happen. Seriously, ready for it? On September 7th, 70, the Roman Army General Captain Titus occupied Jerusalem. Seriously, how crazy is that? Not even 1970, just straight up 70. You know what? I'm just kidding. Something else spectacular happened on that date. It's a milestone. On September 7th, 1914, New York City opened up the post office to the public. I mean, that's huge, guys. No more Pony Express. No more letters attached to crow's feet. I mean, I I can't imagine what they did before that building was open to the public. No, seriously, guys, I'm actually referring to my one year of sobriety, which is going to come up on September 7th, 2015. But I'm not even really thinking about it. I'm not even going to celebrate it till it happens because a wise man once told me, if you're an alcoholic, you got to take this thing one day at a time. I'm not even looking out on the horizon for my one year of sobriety, but you bet your backside, I am going to be celebrating that. If I make it, nothing's in the book yet, but that's my plan because today I'm going to be sober and I'll do my best to stay sober tomorrow as well. Today is part three of the four part series called the other side. What is that? Well, It's where I interview normal drinkers whose lives have been extremely affected, shall we say, by alcoholics. And today, I interview Cassie. She's a young, and what it sounds like, a Southern belle who married an alcoholic. It wasn't totally clear he was an alcoholic when they married, but he showed signs that he did want to improve his life and not drink as much. And after that, I've got Claire from Lansing, Michigan. She's 47 years old, and she's got nine years of sobriety. Cassie says an amazing thing. It's either during an interview or we continue to talk a little bit after we recorded an interview. It was that your addiction lies to you in your own voice. I love that so much. And in fact, it explains so much of why us alcoholics, we do the stupidest shit. And outside looking in, it's insane. In fact, inside looking out, it's also insane. The reason why is because it's our own damn voice telling us, hey, Paul, it's okay. I know last time we tried this, you drank consecutively for five days, you completely disregarded all work obligations, you pissed off a lot of friends, but yeah, it's going to be different this time. We can do this, Paul. Seriously, it's our own voice lying to us. And the same darn thing happened this weekend while I was at a wedding. Halfway through the ceremony, there was some unity candle toast. They poured what to me looked like expensive shots of whiskey because the groom had family from Ireland. So I'm sitting there at the ceremony, which was held in a park, nestled up this canyon at the bottom of the Tobacco Root Mountains, which is in a town called Pony, Montana, which you ask me, that's a pretty sweet name for a town. Sure, it could have been called Stallion, Montana, but regardless, Pony, still a pretty cool name for a town. It was a gorgeous afternoon. My two good friends were getting married, and while they're pouring the whiskey together and drinking it together, my addiction talks to me and says, that's going to be really cool, Paul, when we get to do the same thing at our wedding day. And I'm looking at them drinking that expensive Jameson, toasting it to their relatives in Ireland who couldn't make the trip or the journey over the sea to the wedding. And I said, yeah, that will be pretty cool. But then I was like, ah, f- come on, not you again. 
I gotcha. So I squashed those feelings pretty quickly, but they were very convincing. Shoot. For a couple seconds there, all I had to do was stay sober till my wedding, which sure, it was probably going to be till 2027, but you get the point. In my mind, I already had a date set when I was going to drink, but damn you, addiction. I gotcha. I heard you loud and clear. So enough out of this guy. Let's hear from Cassie. Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome Cassie to the podcast. Cassie, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm fantastic, thank you. And Cassie is a normal drinker. All right, She is part three of the four-part series called The Other Side, where Cassie is married to an alcoholic. Cassie is 28 years old, and she married an alcoholic knowing he had a drinking problem, but he also exhibited the fact that he wanted to live a healthier life. So Cassie, give me a little bit of background about yourself, your marriage, and take it from here. Sure. So I'm from a small town and actually went to middle and high school with my husband. Um, We were friends, but never dated. And as I shared with you in an email, you know, uh, his story is very similar to yours and what I read and that um, from the first time he had a drink at like 15, you know, where it was fun for everyone else around him, it became very quickly miserable for him. And so he never was able to um, be a functional or quote healthy drinker. I don't know if that exists, but he was never able to be moderate. And so um, it's been over a 10 year struggle for him. So uh, we were friends, never dated. He said he used to ask me out all the time in school. And I said, no, cause he was so wild. I don't recall it, but he says he remembers many times that I turned him down. But later after college and after going to grad school, I moved back home and we ran into each other. And at that point in both of our lives, I was a youth pastor. I was leading about 150 middle and high school students. And he was recently sober. He still at that point didn't acknowledge I'm an alcoholic. At that point, it was just, I can't drink or maybe I shouldn't drink. So he had taken a lot of steps to remove himself from the situation he was in. He changed his phone numbers. He disconnected from all of his friends He moved home, and he had made lots of steps to try to live a healthy lifestyle. So I um, started dating him about probably three or four months into his sobriety. It sounds like your husband at that moment had made a lot of crucial steps towards you know, realizing that he had a problem, except probably the most important step, which is step one, you're an alcoholic. And, and that reminds me, you're correct, of, of my story as well, where I was sober two and a half years and I just said, oh, I, I don't drink. And my life is better without drinking. And I would never say I'm an alcoholic or admit that I go to AA meetings. I would just simply say I don't drink. Now, talk to me about that year of sobriety when you were with him. Did he simply not drink or did he also do a program because that's called you know, just being a dry drunk, which you also touch base in the email. But talk to me about that year of sobriety. Was he just not drinking? Right. So um, we dated and we married about a year and a half after we started dating. And he'd had relapses and bouts of drinking while we dated. He'd had a um, good bit of sobriety at the point we got married. So then once we were married, he was sober the whole first year of our marriage. But it was a difficult first year. Um, addiction aside, Marriage is not what everybody, you know, somebody really wise told me, don't go into marriage seeking to be happy, go into marriage seeking to be refined because it will refine you. And, you know, we faced a lot of things first year of marriage and he managed to stay sober. In hindsight now, he was a dry drunk. Um, He had not been to, he'd been to a program when he was younger that was kind of court ordered. So 
he didn't, you know, hold much stock in that. But um, in hindsight, he was white knuckling. He was determined to stay sober. But at that point, he didn't believe that it was possible to be sober and happy. He just thought, I either stay sober and keep everything intact or drink and do what I really want and lose everything. And so, um, you know, with the stresses of marriage and just the normal stresses of life, about a year into our marriage, he relapsed. And, you know, that phrase that alcoholics pick up where they left off, you know, he picked up where he left off. He didn't slowly go back into drinking. It was just a, it was just an overnight thing. And he, he's not, he's a binge streaker. He's not a drink every day in function. And so in some ways it's been a blessing because he couldn't hide it. You know, within a day or two of drinking, it was um, out all night, couldn't go to work. He's never been able to be a functional alcoholic. And I think it's some, it's way harder to identify for an alcoholic. I think to identify I'm an alcoholic when you can function and still do everything that everybody else is doing. But for my husband, that never was the case. He um, was a big binge drinker. That started um, steamrolling really fast after, like I said, after that first year of marriage. And, you know, a lot of other things happened in the midst of the relapses. He was probably six, eight months drinking on and off um, before I found out that he'd been having an affair. And in hindsight, he said, you know, his last ditch, he didn't start drinking until he started the affair. And he said, you know, the guilt of the affair, he couldn't handle. And so then he started drinking and it was just this cyclical roller coaster of emotion. So, you know, I didn't find that out till a good ways into it, but it's what got the ball rolling for him. So um, at the point that I found out about the affairs, I asked him to leave and I filed for separation and he began going downhill really fast. Uh, within about a month, he had gotten a DUI. And then he got a public drunk for passing out in the, a parking lot of a gas station. And then he had to go to court and face me with the separation. And finally, finally, one night I got a phone call from him and he was in a hotel room by himself throwing up blood, literally afraid he was going to die. And he said, I know I need help. And, you know, for people that don't know addiction and don't know that it truly is a disease you know, from outside looking in, people would say, Cassie, like, he's got to know he's an alcoholic. Or Cassie, he's got to know that there's a problem. But it really took that low of a bottom for him to for him to realize, this isn't do I want to drink or don't I want to drink. This is do I want to live or do I not want to live. Cassie, you said something real important there. You said alcoholism is a disease and it's imperative that you know that. And unfortunately, a lot of the population don't understand that it's disease, just like cancer. And in reference, you're living and you're married to a sick person. Now, how, when you said he was white knuckling it, right? It, there's three components mm -hmm. to this disease. That's the physical part, the mental part, and the spiritual part. Now, it, outside looking in, isn't it just like, you know, from a normal drinker's perspective, because I used to be a normal drinker and I would say, well, the person's not drinking, they should be cured, right? How hard was it when he was not drinking that things, and to see things just really didn't get all that much better? Very much so. You know, not only were we new to marriage and learning about expectations in marriage, I was new to the world of addiction. You know, I quickly did a lot of research and got online and read books and talked to people, but you know, it's a learning process as well as marriage or anything new. And so I had expectations that 
the husband that I knew and the guy that I met was just going to pop into play. And I couldn't understand and sometimes wasn't empathetic enough that he was really struggling. And I didn't realize it till after the fact. I just thought, you know, he doesn't want to enjoy life or he just doesn't want to, you know, face the problems that everybody else has to face. You know, I would, I would be really critical and be like, you're facing the same things that I'm facing. But what I didn't realize and what I wasn't empathetic of was he really wasn't. His lens um, that he was looking through because he was trying to navigate and learn to live life sober was so different than my lens. He was learning, you know, under pressure of a new marriage, how do I deal with conflict sober? How do I deal with social events sober? How do I deal with, you know, meeting new people sober? And he's, it's like a, a child learning everything for the first time. And I just didn't have perspective of it at the time and had expectations that he should just be back to normal. Cassie, I'm not defending your husband at all, but I don't even think Superman could be placed in that situation and succeed. For example, me as an alcoholic, I would have self-imploded fast. The wheels would have come off right? and I would have been just as bad, if not worse, as your husband. Now, let's talk about three weeks ago. I understand he was 23 months sober, almost one month shy of two years, and he relapsed. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. Well, I'll tell you, um, at the point he hit his bottom, you know, he, I told him, I said, you can come home tomorrow. You can make phone calls if it's your choice to go somewhere. If not, that's okay. You know, I'm, and you can go back to doing what you're doing, but if this is what you want. And so he came home the next day, he called um, a program that he'd heard a lot about. He spilled his guts on the phone. I mean, it, it takes such uh, courage to speak tell everything he told a counselor, a stranger on the phone. And he went for 12 weeks to a program and it changed both of our lives. You know, number one, he, I think experienced in a lot of ways for the first time, authentic relationships, all of his relationships and friendships were based off drinking. And when he quit drinking, he had this concept that they're still going to be my buddies and they're still going to be around. And he learned really quickly. If I'm not drinking. They're not, they're not around. And for the first time, I think for both of us as adults and together, we learned, it, we call it a new normal, but we found normalcy. He was around tons of other people who were, you know, successful business people, um, families, children. And I went to a family week there for four days, which was the best thing I ever did because I sat around 30 other family members who had the exact same stories. And that's what's so isolating about the disease is when you're talking to your family and friends about oh, he didn't come home last night and he was supposed to be bringing dinner home and he left it on the front porch because he was too scared to come inside. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. And it's just emotionally draining. But when you're in a place like he was, and I was talking to family members, they were like, yep, been there, done that. You know, it was a new normal. And so he was really equipped with a lot of tools to learn for the first time to live life sober and happy. And I learned you know, as a wife and as a support system, what I can do and what I can't for him. And um, the whole first year after that program was wonderful. And then the last year has kind of been a slow fade. I, I compare it to summer camp. Like if you go to some impactful program or summer camp and you come home like so excited about what you're going to do and the longer you're away from it and the more distant it seems, kind of the less important was it really that big of a deal. 
And I think that's what's happened over the last six months is he's kind of slipped back into that dry drunk phase of I'm still not drinking, but I'm not happy. So about two, three weeks ago, he relapsed. And, you know, over the last three weeks, it's been quicker relapses, which I'm so thankful for because he knows what he's coming back to. He knows he can come back to happy and sober. But it, it's been a roller coaster of a few weeks. And just because there's been two years in between for him and for me, it does not get easier. It never gets easier. Cassie, I've said this before. Alcoholics are extremely selfish. And this is number three in a four-part series called The Other Side. And I just realized while doing these interviews, I'm still being selfish. I'm still focusing on the alcoholic and the relationship. Cassie, this re I want this interview to be about you. How hard has this been for you? We know how hard it's been for the alcoholic, your husband. How hard has this been mm -hmm. for you? It has been extremely hard. You know, I can confidently say if I had to do it over again, I still would because I chose to marry him knowing the struggles that he had. But it is it is incredibly hard to maintain joy and maintain stability and a sense of normalcy throughout it. Because, you know, when he would leave for a week on end or two weeks on end or however long it was, you know, I, I define it as just, it's, I've lived a life of waiting, you know, waiting to hear if I'm going to hear from a hospital waiting to see if I'm going to hear from a morgue, <laughs> waiting to see if I'm going to hear from the jail, uh, waiting to see if he's going to come home, uh, waiting to see if somebody's going to find him on the side of the road. And, you know, when he does come home, I'm always so thankful. But the emotional stress of him being gone and trying to still go to work every day and meet obligations that I have to family and friends and peers uh, is nothing short of draining. And you know, it's, you can put a lot of parameters in place and structure your life so that you can keep going. But the, the reality of it is, is there's going to be points when you crash, you know, and I'm a tough bird <laughs> and I try to keep a good face, but every once in a while I just crash and I'll have a couple days where I have to just take care of me and recoup and get myself better, you know, and healthy enough to keep on going. Cassie, is there a line in the sand for you? What I mean is, have you told yourself, all right, I'm going to give my husband three more months, or if 2016 rolls around and this stuff is still happening, I'm done. Is there a line in the sand that you've drawn, or, or when, you know, what happens moving forward if it still continues? You know, there's some that we have drawn, and there's some boundaries that I have, one being, you know, if the re if if he does relapse, and, and we've communicated, if he does relapse, um, and it continues, it's cyclical. It's he's not able to kind of get his head around it. It takes longer. Um, he can't come home, and I'm able to become responsible for our finances so that I can protect our finances. But you know, I I talk with a lot of mothers, and I talk with a lot of spouses that deal with the same thing. And I don't know if this is the right advice, but you get so much advice from so many well-intentioned people, and every piece of advice is so different. Take him out now. Take care of him. You're his wife. Be unconditional, you know, from every direction. And this is the resolve I've come to with myself, is that I, and it's a selfish decision, but I have to live for the rest of my life with whatever decisions I make. 
So in the first year of our, or after he relapsed, after the first year of our marriage, if I asked myself, if I kick him out right now and he dies in a car accident, will I live the rest of my life guilty? And for a while, that answer was yes. And so because that answer was yes, I let him come home. But there became a day when I asked myself, if I don't help him and I let him get in that car again today or I kick him out and he dies in a car accident tonight, would I feel guilty the rest of my life? And there came a day that that answer was no. Um, that answer was, I have done everything I can. I've loved unconditionally, and he is responsible for him. And so, you know, I just encourage people to not make rash decisions because you have to live with your decisions for the rest of your life and the consequences of them. So I've just kind of lived under the framework when I can confidently say I'm making the decision, this decision knowing I will move forward without guilt regardless of what happens that's the right time for me to draw the line. Cassie, that's got to be extremely difficult getting advice from alcoholics, from non-alcoholics about what to do. And it sounds like you just touched base upon what advice you would give. But let me ask you the question. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you that question is what advice would you give to somebody who's married to an alcoholic? Mm -hmm. One would be do not isolate yourself. It's a lonely enough disease, and alcoholism truly is a family disease. You know, I have friends of my husband that will text me and say, I thought I thought he was drinking, but it wasn't him. It was someone else. I feel crazy. And I say, you're not crazy, but the disease makes you feel crazy. It is a family and friends disease. It is not the disease of one. And, you know, so I would encourage people. It's isolating enough to have to explain to people who have not dealt with addiction day after day, this is what addiction is. This is what, and so surround yourself with people who know what it is, whether it's the spouse or family member of an addict or whether it's an alcoholic or an addict. Surround yourself with people who know what it is to go through it because there's such a sense of relief and such a sense of normalcy of surrounding yourself. And I heard you say this on an interview with a, um, someone else who does a podcast saying like this conversation is so relieving because I don't have to explain what I'm saying to you. You know exactly what I'm saying to you. And so, you know, I would just encourage people to surround themselves with people who are going through it, who have been through it and can navigate it with you. Cassie, that is fantastic advice. And unfortunately there is no shortage of people who on both sides of the coins, there are no shortage of alcoholics Mm -hmm. and there are no shortage of family members who are gone through the struggle. And I couldn't agree with you more. The 12th step, basically of every program or the last step is working with other alcoholics or working with other non-alcoholics mm-hmm. who are surrounded by alcoholics. And, and Cassie, fantastic stuff. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It still blows me away of how selfish we are. Isn't that incredible? The stuff that Cassie went through and the stuff that she is still going through. Cassie, my heart goes out to you. Big virtual hug. Now, let's hear from Claire. But before we hear from Claire, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome Claire to the podcast. Claire, how are you? I'm great. How are you? 
I'm good, thanks. Now, Claire is 47 years old. She's joining us from Lansing, Michigan. And Claire, tell me real quick, how long have you been sober? Um, my nine-year sobriety birthday was March 28th, 2015. So just a little over nine years. Congratulations on that. And referencing the podcast title, talk to me about when you decided to quit drinking, when you decided to get off that elevator. And what was the final, yeah, what made you finally quit drinking? Well, I had been talked to from my family, from my friends about my drinking, but it was always when we were drinking, you know, they would say, hey, Claire, you know, let's go out. We want to talk. It, we would end up in a bar and we'd have a couple of drinks, I think, so they could loosen up too. And they would say, you know, we think we have a drinking problem. And I would say what I thought they wanted to hear, which is, I know but we were drinking so we would swipe it under the rug and just go ahead with our day or our evening. Um, work started getting involved. Um, my, my addiction and my alcoholism was spilling over into my work life um, quite badly. Actually, I didn't realize it at the time. So quite a few people um, came to me and they actually called our fraud department of the company where I used to be employed, thinking that I had a problem with alcohol and I actually had a detective follow me. And one of our vice presidents talked to me about that. But that still wasn't enough to quit drinking. And then I would have dreams and in my dreams, I would tell myself that I needed to quit drinking, that I had a problem with alcohol. But again, that wasn't enough. And what finally got got me, you know, I was, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And one of my close friends passed away <clears throat> and I went to her wake and I was a wreck. I think I started drinking at five that morning and I could barely see straight. And I figured I was going to be gone all day, tied up the wake, both visitations. There was a rosary at night. So I dropped my two dogs off at my ex-husband's house and I was leaving his house and I crashed my car, but I don't know how I did it. I still to this day do not know how I did it. I think I was trying to put on lipstick and I was steering with my knee. I remember hitting something and then I kind of, I guess, came to and just kept driving. My car was totaled. And the next day was her funeral. I was pretty, I mean, I was really drunk at her wake and a lot of people knew and I'm sure they were very embarrassed for me. And then the next day was her funeral. And when I got home from her funeral, my friends had done an intervention tree and my mom had called me up and she said, I heard about what happened this weekend. You know, I heard what's going on. If you don't get help, I'm done. I'm done with you. And my ex-husband came over to the house, took the rest of my booze that I had. And he was there with me when I made the telephone call to go into our treatment facility at Sparrow Hospital here in Lansing. I called the treatment center and asked them if I could come in the next day. And of course they were like, well, why don't you come in tonight? And I'm like, you know, I just, I need this time. I didn't drink that day at all. So when I went into treatment the next morning, as I had promised, I, um, I blew a point zero zero, um, which kind of shocked me because I had thought I'd had enough alcohol in my system over the last, I don't know how many years of drinking. Um, but they still took me in, which I was very thankful. So that was my first sober day. I love it how your intervention was derailed by drinking at the bars. That's that's somewhat humorous, but I'm glad. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. 
It doesn't make any sense, but you know, I think they needed it. I'm sure a lot of people were talking behind my back about my drinking and, you know, they were worried, but, you know, I would, again, always tell them what they wanted to hear. And I think every addict does that at some point in their, you know, full addiction is just say what they think, you know, their loved ones want to hear. And yeah, it was always at the bar or it was over at my house or their house with drinks. Claire, tell me about this intervention tree. When I was in Colorado, I had a drinking tree where I would just sit in a tree and drink. But tell me about this intervention tree. I've, I've never heard about that. And what is that? I love it. <laughs> well, it was basically a phone tree. So one of my coworkers um, had heard all the rumors back at work because this friend that passed away was also a coworker. So it made it back to work that Claire was really drunk at uh, Miriam's funeral or at the, the wake. And then the next day, I, I'm sure I looked really rough. Anyway, she had called my mom. So my mom started calling friends. One of my girlfriends called my mom and told her everything that was going on. Um, you know, told her some secrets that I had told Janine. And, you know, it was shortly after all of that, she apologized to me. And I said, please don't apologize because you were the one who made the bold step to pick up the phone and call my mom because you knew coming to me wasn't going to work anymore. So then my mom started calling my friends and family, got my dad and stepmom involved. Um, they live up in Delaware. who got them involved. So everybody kept calling me, Claire, you need to get help. Claire, get help. Claire, you need to go into treatment. Claire, you need to go to AA. Claire, you need to stop or you're going to kill yourself. You're going to kill somebody. You need to stop. And I think that's all I really needed and to know that they actually loved me and it wasn't out of he, he, look at Claire. She's the drunk over in the corner, you know, because I was, you know, the class partier in high school. Everybody loved it when Claire got drunk because she would be the joke. You know, I would tell jokes and I would do stupid things and make everybody laugh. And, you know, that's how I identified myself with myself. So the way that this phone tree, or I call it my, you know, intervention tree was handled, was handled so well, you would think that they would have done some research on how to handle addiction and how to actually get somebody into recovery because I accepted it. And, and like I said, I think it was just, oh my God, I feel like a weight was just lifted off me. And when I called Sparrow, you know, they were trying to get me to come in. I'm like, you know, no, I, I promise you I'll be there tomorrow, which I'm sure they've probably heard five million times. But I was serious and I was ready. The whole entire approach was was perfect. It couldn't have been practiced out at all, I don't think. Claire, you just said a whole weight was lifted off your shoulders. And I think that's what a lot of alcoholics feel when they finally surrender, when they are ready. It feels, it, it's the weirdest thing because you give up, you stop fighting, you surrender, and then all of a sudden this feeling of hope invades your body for the first time that you haven't felt in a really long time. Is, is that kind of what happened? Oh my gosh, yes. I don't even know how to explain that feeling. I don't know how to describe it. I don't have the words to describe that moment and how I felt. It was just... You know, like you said, it was hope. It was a new beginning. It was, you know, I was granted another chance and very powerful, very, very powerful. And, you know, so many people don't understand that they'll get that feeling. You know, that, that was almost my spiritual awakening, you know, 12 steps too soon, you know, that, that day prior to me entering treatment. So it's really hard to tell, you know, that newcomer that, if you haven't felt this yet, you're going to feel it. 
you know, everybody has to experience that for themselves. Claire, we're going to get back to the solution and how you did it. But first, tell us about your drinking habits. How much did you drink before you went into rehab? Did you ever try to regulate, control, to have plans, routines set, like you're only going to drink on the weekends? What was that like? Oh, absolutely. I was, you know, I I would set out, we would go out, you know, we would have plans to go out on a Friday or Saturday and I would tell myself I'm not going to do any shots or I'm not going to drink vodka because vodka would get me really drunk, but that's what I liked. So then I would sneak vodka even when we were out. I would try just having a few, you know, and when I really tried not to drink is when I typically ended up really drunk. It got to, when I first started, you know, just the social drinking, it was more at events or weekends, Friday night maybe after, you know, a rough week or busy week, you know, but then it turned into every day. I was definitely an everyday drinker. You know, I was doing all the tricks and all the hiding and I would try and quit, try and quit on my own. I would go walk into the club at AA and, you know, get some information and and quickly run out because I didn't want to be associated with those people. I didn't want anybody to tell me that it was going to get better or not. I just wanted to drink. Like I said, I would sneak it. I would hide it. Rarely would I drink in the morning before work. If I had a really bad bender the night before, I would wake up towards like maybe the last year of my drinking, I would wake up the next morning at like 5, 5.30 for work. And I would have to drink just to even get me coherent enough to get in the shower to get ready for work. I remember stumbling into the kitchen one morning, and this was right before I quit, grabbing just like the liter of wine and jugging it out of the bottle. And, you know, I went to work like that, and that was like a blackout day. I only remember bits and pieces of that day, and here I was at work. I have, um, you know, a few people at work that are also in the program and they had entered the program before me so they could see the signs and people were going, my coworkers and friends were going to these two individuals, Sally and Dan, you know, saying Claire needs to help. And I remember Sally coming over and she's like, honey, you know, I've heard that, you know, you were drunk the other day, you were stumbling, you were slurring, you read. And I'm like, nope, nope, I'm fine. Just the lies and the cover up. Yeah. I would, I loved, you know, to drunk dial and, and talk to people at, at night while I was drinking. And, and I would have like sticky notes or a pad of paper in front of me to try and write down what we were talking about. So the next morning I could remember. But then if it got later or if I had a little too much, I couldn't even read my writing. So it was just, it was just chaos over and over. Claire, talk to me about what it was like when you went to rehab the first day, the first month, and then the first year out of sobriety. What physical and mental and psychological changes did you see? Did it get easier? There was a lot. When my mom came and picked me up, it was Tuesday, March 28th of 2006, and my mom came to pick me up. We were on our way. I had already called work. I called my HR manager who had also talked to me because her husband was is in recovery. So she knew all the signs. And then, so I called my HR manager and I called my supervisor and I was honest with her. I had to call and open up a claim with our third party sick time administrator. And then my mom came to pick me up and on the way from my house to inpatient rehab is maybe three, four miles. So I'm quickly trying to make a couple of phone calls to two of my closest friends, um, one, uh, Carrie, in Lansing, and then um, our mutual friend Kelly to say that, you know, I was going into treatment. My ex-husband was taking the dogs. My mom was crying on the way as she's driving, saying this is all her fault. And I just looked over at her and I said, Mom, this has nothing to do with you. I made the choices. 
it's time for me to face the consequences and to get better. You did not do this. Walked into rehab, um, you know, told them what was going on. I had called the night before. They took me in the back. I had a very long interview. I think they were kind of looking at me funny because when I blew, the first thing they had me do was, was take a breathalyzer. And I wasn't drunk, but I'm like, you know, I'm telling you, I am bad, you know. So I almost felt like I had to plead my case to stay. Um, This was on a Tuesday. We didn't do a lot. There was a, a few other people in there with me. I was confused. I had the worst headache, and I just felt like I was watching a Lifetime movie. Like, this wasn't really me. We went to some group therapy. We went out. We did an outdoor activity. We went to CA meetings, cocaine anonymous meetings, because the few days that I was in the hospital, there weren't any AA meetings at Sparrow. So it was Thursday afternoon. My individual psychiatrist had pulled me into his office and said, we're going to have to send you home. And I'm like, why? I panicked. And he said, Medically, we cannot keep you. We're an acute care sub-abuse facility. You came in sober. You don't show any signs of withdrawals. You know, they were giving me some medicine. I'm sure, I don't know. I honestly, I don't know. I just took the medicine. There's really no medical reason that we can keep you here. You can go home and choose a recovery program. So I panicked. I had a panic attack in his office. He took my blood pressure and my pulse. They were highly elevated, so he was able to keep me another day. So I was able to go and do group therapy that night. And then the next morning, I needed a ride home. And I was calling my mom. I was calling um, a few of my other girlfriends. And nobody would come and pick me up because they thought I was trying to get out early. So finally, my girlfriend Carrie said, I will come and get you. So she came and picked me up, took me back home to the place in which I drank. Uh, an enormous amount of alcohol and I didn't have my dogs and it was about 7:30 at night and she had her two little ones and she's like I wish I could stay with you and I said you know what I am going to get my pillow I'm going to watch tv and lay on my couch and that's exactly what I did and I slept all night the next morning I got up and our LNO club is maybe two three blocks from my house so I got up Saturday morning and I went to my first AA meeting and then I just immersed myself in the program going to meetings but I wasn't talking to anybody I was going to the meetings I was listening watching absorbing it but I always spoke I always shared because it was dying to come out of me I was done suppressing it with alcohol so I always said a few sentences maybe a little bit more I cried a lot I don't think I had that those many tears stuck in me. So then, you know, I, I, I took three weeks off of work and I kept myself busy doing projects around the house, things that I had always wanted to do, but drinking came first. I was starting to feel good. I was on my pink cloud. My friends started noticing a difference. My mom was reacting a little bit differently to me. My grandma was in a nursing home, so I was able to spend some more quality time with her. Another thing that I noticed which was kind of difficult, is my friends that I had surrounded myself with practically my whole life, they didn't know what to do with me. So when Claire came calling, they may have wanted to go out, have a couple glasses of wine at dinner or a beer at the ball game or on the golf course. And even though these were my normie friends, they weren't excessive drinkers like me. At least I knew I couldn't call them an alcoholic or alcoholics. I was very lonely and scared. 
my ex-husband did a lot. He reached out. He would take me out to dinner. We'd go out to movies. I'd bring the dogs because they were our dogs together, bring them over to his house, let them play. And that kind of gave me the confidence, you know, that maybe I wasn't crazy and I wasn't an outcast. Started to talk to people after the meetings. I'd hang out and say hi, clean up, or I'd come a little bit early, make coffee. I started going to the event, our Central Lansing Alcoholics Anonymous chapter does quite a lot in recovery, whether it's picnics, softball, tournaments, celebrations of sobriety, you name it, there's always something going on like every month. So I started doing service work in that sense and really getting to know people in the program. Once I convinced my friends that they could act normal around me if they wanted to drink to let me know and I could make the decision whether I wanted to go to dinner or not whether I needed to stay back. You know, once everybody kind of realized that this is probably going to stick, everyone kind of fell back into this new normal. I lost my grandma. She passed away. I think it was about eight or nine months into my sobriety. And I went to the hospital to see her after she passed, spent some time with my mom, drove from the hospital, went to a meeting, and went out to dinner with the fellowship that night. You know, that gave me the strength, you know, to get up the next few days and make arrangements with my mom. You know, and then it just, it, the, the feelings were sometimes uncomfortable, but not so uncomfortable that I had to take a drink. You know, it, they were welcoming, even though they weren't welcoming. You know, I, I was starting to look better. I was getting compliments, you know, oh my gosh, you look wonderful. What are you doing? Some people didn't even recognize me. That's how badly I looked before. And that, and I didn't realize it then, like my first year, the difference, you know, it took me about five years into my sobriety to realize what a difference and a transformation I had gone through, especially that first year. It was just, you know, it was amazing. It it was feeling that I never want to forget. I always want to remember because I, I, I never want to go back. You know, th- there's not a second time for me. There's, there's, there's not, I know that. And I've come so much farther just from that first year that, you know, I just, it keeps you going. It, it just kind of keeps you on that, that wheel of life. And you're like, okay, I have tools. I know what I can do if I choose to use them. And I know what will happen if I choose not to use them. So, Claire, let me get this right. You were prepared to go to rehab, and there aren't three-day rehab centers. You were prepared to go for a month, two months, you know, 90 days, whatever, and you got booted after three days and stayed sober? That Did, did I hear that right? <laughs> Yes, you did. I was really scared, though. I've got to tell you, I was really, really scared. That tells me two things. Two things Mm -hmm. tell me that you were ready to quit drinking. The first one was when you finally surrendered, you have that wave of hope overcome you. Number two is when the person said, we can't medically keep you in this hospital. And you had a panic attack because that was the thought of you going back out of what mm-hmm. and experiencing what you're, you're feeling. I mean, that's like if you get food poisoning at an Indian restaurant down the block and your friend's like, hey, we're, we're going to the Indian spot. You want to go? And you're just like, no, no, I, I, I can't ever go back <laughs> there. And, and mm-hmm. yeah, that panic attack, you're ready to quit drinking. And here we are nine years later and, and you did it. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, great stuff, Claire. And we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be great. Are you ready, Claire? I'm ready. Let's do this. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Um, my worst memory from drinking was probably all the times that I didn't have a memory. 
And I would say the worst one would be the night of the wake on my friend's wake where I crashed my car and don't remember it. And Claire, what's your plan in sobriety starting today, moving forward? I plan to work the steps again. Um, I've worked them a couple of times in my sobriety, but I want to get a different sponsor and work them at a different level and work a little bit more with the big book. Claire, what is your favorite resource in recovery? My favorite resource is the we, and I call it the we, which would be the fellowship of AA, all of the wonderful people that I've met in recovery, whether it is AA or another recovery program or people that just choose not to even associate with a program. Those are the people that keep me sane. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received is when people told me, let me or let us love you until you can love yourself. I didn't understand that for the longest time, but now I try and pass that and pay that forward. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are ready to quit drinking? The piece that I would give listeners who are ready to quit drinking is to please give it some time and please know that there is hope and there is light at the end of the tunnel. My life today is amazing because I quit drinking. I would not have any of what I have today if it weren't for recovery. Thank you so much for joining us today, Claire. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Recovery Elevator episode 25. On iTunes, you can actually only hear the previous 20 episodes. So go to recoveryelevator.com, go to podcasts, and you can hear all the episodes on there for the great price of free. If you are struggling, which heck, I was big time. Join us at the Recovery Elevator private accountability group page on Facebook. Just search for Recovery Elevator, find the group, request to join. Currently, there are over 85 of us who are all in early sobriety, supporting each other, working together, staying sober. Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down, you gotta take the stairs back up. You can do this.